Amen. Well, it's so great to see you all. Wonderful to be together. And just like we did last Lord's Day, uh, installing Anton uh, L. into uh, the diaconate, a wonderful group of deacons, uh, we did that at this time so that those in the various places around our campus uh, are able to, to see that and hear that. I want to do a little bit uh, of that again. We won't be installing any deacons today, but I do want to take a moment. Uh, as elders, we just want to update you on, on, on a matter and let you know about a, uh, a certain uh, matter. You know, as citizens, uh, we're afforded uh, certain uh, rights. And we even see from the Apostle Paul that as a Roman citizen, uh, he uh, appealed uh, to the government uh, as a citizen. Uh, he appealed to the laws that the governing authorities gave him as a citizen. And he made respectful appeals to those governing authorities. You also see in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21, that Paul says to slaves, uh, if you can get your freedom, then do it. If you can get your freedom, then do it. And so about a month or so ago, a number of churches, uh, we didn't kick it off, but we're certainly a part of it now. A number of churches got together after some very successful uh, court cases uh, in other parts of the world uh, that share the Bill of Rights uh, that we have here in New Zealand. There's a moving groundswell we want to tell you about, and uh, we're involved in it. Um, to what extent, we don't know yet, but uh, we want to make uh, a respectful appeal uh, to our government, uh, a respectful appeal to our government, uh, particularly as it pertains to the Bill of Rights, uh, particularly as it pertains to the freedom of, of assembly that the Bill of Rights affords us. And so I want to let you know about that. These things move pretty quick, and so uh, you wouldn't believe the Lord's mighty providential hand in things like lawyers and things of that nature. And so we just want to make a respectful appeal uh, as uh, Scripture allows us to. Um, and uh, if we can get our freedom, we want to get it. And so I want to let you know about that. Um, and there'll be more that comes uh, in light of that. But uh, if you have any questions, don't hesitate uh, to ask one of the elders. Well... We come again, of course, to the Word of God. We come now to the Gospel of John. If you're visiting with us, we're working our way verse by verse through this Gospel. Last Lord's Day, we picked up in it once again. And last Lord's Day, we concluded chapter 4. This morning, we begin chapter 5. And of course, chapter divides and verses are man-made devices and so all just keeps going along in one glorious thread of divine revelation to us. And so let's just get right into it now and let's read the first 17 verses of John chapter 5. This portion really goes all the way through to verse 47 as one thought, but we just want to consider the verse seven, first 17 verses this morning together. Let's read those and then as we do, let's always ask the Lord to bless our time Together, John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, 
which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately, the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. And so the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. They said to him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away. And told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he, that's Jesus, answered them. My father is working. Until now. And I myself. Am working. Let's pray. Father we. We come, we come with hearts overwhelmed by your grace. We come rejoicing. We've sung as an overflow of our, of our rejoicing. We've, we've praised you with our lips. From the abundance of our hearts, we've praised you. While we have our being, we praise you because we consider who you are. We consider that you are faithful, kind, merciful, sovereign, holy, Abounding in loving kindness. We're moved by your character, Lord. We're moved to worship you. And so we come now under your holy and inspired and sufficient and authoritative word as an act of worship. And ask, Lord, that we would bow to it in reverence and worship, knowing that it is you speaking to us in this holy hour. And so we come as your people. We thank you for your spirit that illuminates and guides. We thank you for this time in Christ's name. Amen. We considered last Sunday the second sign, you recall. The second of eight uh, miraculous signs that are revealed to us in the Gospel of John. And you'd recall from last Sunday that in each of the... I made mention that in each of the three other Gospels, they're called the synoptics, The word in the three other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, to describe miracles is the Greek word uh, dunamis, 
Dynamis, really, which means miracle, whereas in John, that word never appears. Instead, the word used to describe miracles throughout John is the Greek word samia, which means sign. And that's the real divine purpose of God there to help us see that when a miracle is described as a sign, all eight of those in John, it's the author telling us that the miracle, the sign, the healing that we've just read serves to point to something greater, something greater than the healing itself. It is a sign. It signifies something. And so what's before us in the first portion of our passage, at least, is a healing. A healing we just read about. It's illustrating, though, something beyond that, something beyond the actual healing of this lame man. It's a sign pointing to a greater truth. And in John chapter 5, verses 1 to 17, which is our passage of consideration this morning, we're going to see Jesus's power and glory on display through three separate yet intrinsically connected events. If you're taking notes, I want to give those to you up front. We'll see in verses 1 through 9, the sick man. In verses 10 to 16, very simply, we'll see the Sabbath. And then in verse 17, we'll see the sun. And so the sick man, the Sabbath, and the sun. That's simply something for you to hang your thoughts and notes upon. And so let's jump right in under that heading there, the sick man, in verses 1 through 9. The opening nine verses of chapter 5, they take us now into Jerusalem. Into Jerusalem with Jesus. Jesus has now moved on and away from Galilee. Galilee was where we were last Lord's Day as we considered the royal official coming to know the Lord Jesus, both him and his household. But now Jesus enters into Jerusalem as chapter 5 gets underway. And I want to tell you, that chapter 5 really marks the, commencements, the commencement of a turn in how Jesus is treated. Up until now, Jesus has been well accepted by most. Even though, as we saw from Jesus' own words last week in verse 44, that a prophet has no honor in their homeland. And those in Galilee, his homeland, we saw that they didn't receive him as Messiah to forgive their sin, but instead they received him just wanting him to bring comfortable lives to them. But outside of his hometown, yes, Jesus has been uh, received as it were. He's been held at arm's length. But now, chapter 5 onwards, Jesus now begins to be wholesalely rejected. Even as we just read in verse 17, persecuted. The open hostility that begins in our passage this morning as Jesus is involved in controversy. You know, Jesus was no stranger to controversy. Those in union with him, while we don't go looking for it, sometimes by way of being in possession of the righteousness of Christ, controversy comes looking for us. We saw that our Lord Jesus entered into his homeland, as I made mention of last week, belabored that. I think it's good for us to ever be reminded of that, is that he didn't hesitate. He didn't shrink back from embracing rejection. His, his satisfaction, you recall, is not in having a good reputation, but his satisfaction is doing the will of God. It's an important lesson for us. 
Open hostility begins here now. In fact, it is this incident at the pool, the pool called Bethesda, that actually sparks the fire for persecution for Jesus. You remember from chapter 3 and 4, the countless crowds of people were coming to him at the River Jordan to see Jesus. So many, you remember, such was the commotion. There was all that stuff going on between John the Baptist and his disciples and Jesus and his disciples. John the Baptist's disciples looked down and said, Jesus has more disciples, more people are going to Jesus. There was such commotion there that you remember that the religious Jews were going to come out and see what was going on. And you remember Jesus left from there because of that. All is on a divine timeline. Well, in our passage this morning, those religious Jews now do confront Jesus. They confront him in Jerusalem at this pool. Bethesda. Beth is the Hebrew word for house. You recall that Jesus was from Bethlehem. Beth, Beth or Beth means house and Lahem means bread. Jesus was born in a town which meant house of bread. And, and I love how John's Gospel reveals to us Jesus' words in John 6, our next chapter, that he is the bread of life. And so here in verse 2 is Bethesda. Beth, as I said, meaning house. And Esda, an Aramaic word for mercy. Mercy. And so this pool was a house of mercy. And the pool, as we read, had five porticos. A portico was like a covering, like a, like a shelter. And we read that in this place, there were those who were sick, those that were blind, verse 3 tells us, those that were lame, those that were withered. The remainder of verse 3, I have the NASB here before me, and that continues on in verse 3 saying that those Sick, blind, lame, and withered were, it says, and it's in brackets, were waiting for the moving of the waters. Verse 4 says, For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. And then the brackets end. I recall from earlier this week noticing that if you have an ESV there in front of you, it just goes from verse 3 right to verse 5, and there's no verse 4. The reason it's in brackets in the NAS, the reason it's not in the ESV, is that the earliest manuscripts don't contain those words at the end of verse 3 and then all of verse 4. In fact, the early church fathers believe that what has occurred here is that the mentioning of the angel of the Lord and the stirring of the water, that was the superstition of the day. And that's made its way through scribal error uh, into some manuscripts, but it's not in the earliest of manuscripts. You see, the water did move. It wasn't superstition that the water moved and was stirred. Look at verse 7, or the middle of verse 7 anyway. It says, when the water is stirred up. That's the words of the lame man. He's been there for 38 years. 
knows what he's talking about. The water stirs. But what happened was the water wasn't stirred by an angel of the Lord. The water was stirred by another water source. I learned in my study this week that there were what's called Solomon's pools. Solomon's pools close by. And there were two other streams as well. And so either by Solomon's pools or by these streams, when they had a surge, whether from rain or whatever else, that would then cause the water in Bethesda, the pool, to stir. And so the people grew superstitious. Those omitted verses, as I said, they likely reflected the belief of that superstition. Because you can really see how prevalent that superstitious belief was. Look again at verse 7. The sick man answered Jesus, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. They're all just caught up in this superstition that when the water stirs, the first one in there gets healed. You know, superstition is a terrible thing. It can bind the very soul of a person. I grew up in a, in a, in a family. Obviously, they weren't Christian. Uh, my grandmother was a superstitious Roman Catholic. I've learned very quickly that Roman Catholicism and superstition literally goes hand in hand. Uh, my grandma would pray the rosary and then throw uh, salt over her left shoulder. And uh, I grew up in a very superstitious family. In fact, even after becoming a believer, I still had to shake some of that off, you know. Um, superstition is a terrible thing. It, it, it can trap you in an endless cycle of actions and thinking that you think offers you hope. And it really, it just leads to hopelessness. This is evidenced here. You know, I've spoken like you. I've spoken to people from other faiths. I've spoken to Hindus in Indonesia. Uh, more than once, I've observed their lives, and they're just hijacked by superstition. From sun up to sun down, Hinduism is just hijacked by superstition. Really feel for them. Well, the same was for the people around the pool here too. They were just hijacked by superstition. You know, the practice of superstition is a result of a sinful fallen world, isn't it? But on a far more visible and impactful way, so too is sickness, blindness, lameness, all those physical maladies, crippling maladies, they're all a result of our sinful fallen world. Humanity, isn't it? It's under the blight and curse of sin. Our bodies are heavily affected by the fall of Adam. We don't just, in Adam, possess a guilt nature and a guilty standing. In Adam, we possess a broken, frail, sin-sick, disease-riddled, death-for-certain body. Sin only ever brings about misery, doesn't it? And here, the sick and the blind and the lame and the withered they really serve as a very sad and terrible display 
of the impact that sin has had. I mean, the reason these people are laid up around the pool is because of sin. Sin. Verse 5 tells us that this particular man, as I said, has been there sick for 38 years. Now, I want you to remember that this scene was real. This is not just a made-up story. This event actually occurred. But it's serving as a sign pointing to a greater reality. And that includes the fact that the prevalence of sickness and blindness and lameness and the like in humanity is a direct result of sin. It doesn't mean that all sickness and physical malady is inflicted upon a person because they have sinned more than others. I mean, Jesus spoke to that. That's why karma and the caste system is just diabolical. It's anti-love, anti-God, anti-gospel. They, they won't help people suffering because they're living out their karma. No, it doesn't mean that all sickness and physical malady is inflicted upon a person because of their sin, as though they've sinned more than others. It does mean that sickness and physical malady marks mankind, and the reason being is because of sin. In his commentary on this passage, J.C. Ryle takes the liberty to emphasize the radical damage of sickness correlating to the radical vileness of sin with these words, quote, when we read of cases of sickness like this, he's talking about the pool, we should remember how deeply we ought, ought to hate sin. Sin was the original root and cause and fountain of every disease in the world, Ryle says. These things are the fruit of the fall. There would have been no sickness if there had been no sin. End quote. And so as I said, around the pool is a very sad display of the impact of sin. 38 years is a long time. I'm 39, I think. I haven't turned 40, so I'm, yeah, I think I'm, Lisa, I have, to, I have to ask Lisa how old I am. And I'm not alone. You guys that are late 30s, I know you ask your wives too, or your husbands maybe. I don't know, I can't speak for you ladies. But. And so 38 years is a long time. And I'm sure around the pool, waiting superstitiously for the water to stir, which, we, which they thought would heal them, and then just always missing out on that, this man missing out on that for such a long time would have been causing great hopelessness, great despair, deep loneliness, overwhelmed by grief, I'm sure. And, and it's at that moment of absolute grief and despair and hopelessness and loneliness, it's at that moment of deep sorrow and sadness that verse 6 tells us that the compassionate Christ comes by. The one who's mighty to save. He steps in. Look at verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, do you wish to get well? 
Do you remember from our journey through Mark's gospel, years ago now, that the paralytic man was dropped through the roof? They dropped him at Jesus' feet. Jesus was sitting there and they brought the man to Jesus. While Jesus was inside a house packed full of people. Well, here, unlike there, Jesus actually chooses one from among a suffering group. And he says to him, do you wish to get well? I just love that. Do you wish to get well? It's beautiful. What a question. If you and I saw an unwell person on the street, we could only ask that question from, from one vantage point, and it would be, almost be insulting. It would be condescending. It would be terrible. But for Christ, for Him to ask, that is a display of His love, a display of His care, because He and only He can provide full and lasting healing. Verse 7 again shows us that the man had no idea who it was that was extending compassion to him. Jesus, being truly God and truly man, not half God and half man, but truly God, truly man, fully in possession of the divine nature, he knew the full account of this man's life. He knows the full account of your life and my life. He knew that this man had been laid up for almost 40 years. And the love of God the Father is so vividly expressed in God the Son as Jesus seeks out and speaks to this one who's been laid aside by society. Who's been marginalized and cast out. Disregarded, segregated from society. The Father's love is mediated through the Son. As Jesus breaks through all of that segregation and disregarding. Laying aside by a cruel world. Jesus doesn't distance himself from people like that. And he says, verse 8, look there. Get up. Pick up your pallet and walk. Now get up in the Greek is like, it's not quite yelling, but it's close. Verse 9. Immediately the man became well. Immediately. 30 Eight years of grave illness gone in a split second. The healing of the man was miraculous. Immediate. It was complete, comprehensive, full. The exact opposite to so many so-called healers of our day. It was so immediate and so complete. And it actually happened. The man then leaps for joy and walked. He walked. And as wonderful as all that is, and it is wonderful, Jesus did not do that so the man may experience earthly physical healing. Or that you and I 
readers of this divine book might be amazed at the physical healing. No. Jesus did that, that we might be amazed and filled with gratitude that Jesus seeks out sin sick souls that are spiritually blind and spiritually lame and spiritually withered and spiritually destitute. Spiritually unable to do anything to remedy themselves. And then Jesus with a word of compassion heals us from our sin sick state. Where the guilt of sin and the power of sin had us laid by a pool superstitious and blind. Lost. Where God the Father's love is mediated and expressed to us through Christ the Son. And while not literally with those same words that Jesus spoke to this man, but instead through the instrumental means which God has ordained to draw lost sinners to Himself by the Word and by the Spirit, in our time of spiritual healing, our new birth, our newness of life, Jesus says to you and I, in our sin-sick state, laid up by the pool, laid up in sin's guilt and sin's penalty, He comes along to you and I and He said, do you wish to get well? Do you wish to get well? I don't know where my notes are at, but let me tell you this. The Christian life is a life marked by immense gratitude. Whenever you were asked that question, do you wish to get well? Prior to that, you were by the pool. Blind, lame, withered, sick. Perhaps superstitious. Do you wish to get well? In our moment by the pool, when that question was asked of us, do you wish to get well? We looked and we saw the beauty of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who entered into Galilee, rejected and ridiculed, who then entered into Jerusalem, knowing that He would face fierce persecution and then ultimately crucifixion and beating. Who, if you note from verse 1, back in verse 1, it says there that He went to the feast. I don't want to miss that. He went to a religious feast, required no doubt by the Mosaic law. And so in attending that feast, probably despised and rejected by everyone in attendance of that feast, in attendance of that feast, he earns righteousness. Remember, because the Lord Jesus, as he fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law, he was amassing for himself a righteousness in his living that would then be credited to all those who believe. What a saviour. 
You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, it's out in our hall. It says this, For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God in the person of Christ turns the lights on. Opens our once blind eyes to see the glory and the truth of God. Jesus did not heal every person by that pool. That day, he illustrated the sovereign saving grace of God by choosing to completely alter this one man. This man did not do anything different to all the others by the pool. He was not better than any person by the pool. He was not any worse. He, do, he, didn't, he wasn't smarter. He didn't do anything. He didn't do anything to deserve Jesus' grace and mercy instead so that God's glory and purpose in election might stand and might be illustrated. God in Christ rescued this man from physical malady as an illustration of the power and glory of Jesus to rescue us from spiritual Look now at the remainder of verse 9. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. Here we go. It's amazing, isn't it, that the Gospels are just full of controversy about Jesus and the Sabbath. They had elevated Sabbath to such heights that they were never intended to be elevated to. They added all sorts of man-made rules around them. I can remember living in Los Angeles and the Talmud says that the Jews can walk no more than 2,999 steps on the Sabbath. Doesn't, God doesn't say that. They said that. And uh, so then they have what's called an aruv. And aruv is a piece of rope that they attach from house to house to house all the way down the community so they can walk more than 2,999 steps from their house. They can just keep going because that aruv connects them to their house. Legalism, man-made traditions always blur what God makes clear. We've considered the sick man. We've just read the word Sabbath in verse 9, and that's the second event, the second heading in our outline, where we'll once again see Jesus' power and glory on display. It's connected to the healing. As I said, all three are intrinsically connected. Let's look now at number 2, the Sabbath in verse 10 to 16. Look at verse 10 now. And so the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. First thing, when it says the Jews there, it's referring to the religious and political elite of the nation. The Sanhedrin, we call them. Second, notice that there's not a single word on the fact that this man's been made well. Not a single word. Not a word of rejoicing. Straight to the jugular. You cannot do that. I, I don't like legalism. 
I know you don't either. Now understand this. Jesus would never call someone to break God's law. We know that. And so this man, as he carried his pallet, which is his bed, as he did that and walked, he was not breaking God's law. He was breaking man's law. And the religious and the political elite of the nation were scolding him for it. And due to the heat that this man was getting, he did what the Adamic race, which is you and I, he did what the Adamic race has been doing since the garden. He blamed someone else. Look at verse 11. I mean, it has undertones of Adam and Eve in the garden. Look, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. Not quite the woman whom you gave me, but close. Verse 12, they want to know who it was. Verse 11, uh, sorry, verse 13, the man did not know. The man didn't know because verse 13 tells us Jesus healed him and then left unnoticed. I mean, I take away from that that Jesus heals him, Jesus bounces, Jesus orchestrating the whole thing. It's all sovereign, divine timetable. And then in verse 14, we read something fascinating. Look there. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. Jesus seeks the man again and then tells him quite soberly, I've made you well. You're healthy now. Do not sin. Do not sin, otherwise something worse will happen to you. I mean, that's serious stuff. Sin brought sickness and human frailty into the world. And while we cannot explicitly ever say to a person, uh, you are sick because of a certain sin you committed, while we can't ever say that for certain, we are given warnings, aren't we, in Scripture? There's multiple in the Old Testament. There are times our sin can lead us to get sick, and there's times when our sin can even lead us to die. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30 is one of those. For this reason, the Apostle Paul said, for this reason, that is, your sin of not partaking in the Lord's table appropriately for this reason some among you are sick and some among you are asleep that is they're dead verse 15 now sadly reveals the heart of this now healed man look at verse 15 the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. I mean, think about that for a moment. The heart of the man here. He feared the nation's elite more than he feared Jesus. He just simply goes and tells those who he knew were persecuting Jesus. He just goes and tells them that it was Jesus. Jesus had shown him such mercy. 
Jesus had shown him such compassion. And the man displays zero gratitude. Crumbles to the pressure. And he just drops Jesus' name. The result? Verse 16. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. In the mind of the religious and the political elite, Jesus had both broken the Sabbath and now was a Sabbath breaker in their eyes. A Sabbath breaker was worthy of severe punishment, exile outside the camp, exile outside of Israel, banished. But to them, Jesus was also inciting others to do the same. He was breaking the Sabbath and he was inciting others to do the same. And so the thrust of verse 16 and the word persecuted there is that the nation was now active in coming against Jesus. Debate rages today among believers about the Sabbath. Some want to mandate it. Some want to abdicate it. I can tell you the scripture reveals that we're not under the law that contained it. I can just tell you that for a fact. But if you want to observe it as a matter of conscience, then Paul said to the Colossians, let no one judge you in that matter. Just don't mandate it for your brother or your sister. And so, we see that the Sabbath breaking and the incitement incensed the leaders of the Jewish nation. Jesus had come to the man once again there in the temple. He warned him of not only Jesus' power to deliver people from physical sickness, but also spiritual sickness with the warning that he will judge the sins of those who reject his words. And so we've seen the sick man, we've considered the Sabbath, and now we see number three, the son, in verse 17, the son. And here in verse 17 really is yet another display of the power and the glory of Jesus. This time, Jesus draws upon his relationship with God the Father. Look at verse 17. But he answered them. It's funny, he did, they didn't really ask a question. And I love how he said this in their vicinity. And so they're persecuting, their persecution took them to within Jesus' vicinity. Jesus answered them, My father is working until now. And I myself am working. This is a most remarkable statement. This is really the most important point of the passage. It really takes up all that has occurred, the healing, the Sabbath, the controversy. My father, my father, Jesus says. That's not how the Jews referred to God. They instead would say our 
Father. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus spoke of God the Father as the one whom he was in, the, most, the richest, most intimate, the deepest and closest relationship with. Jesus is saying here in verse 17, in response to the persecution coming his way, look, my father and I created the world. We created it in six literal 24-hour days. Let the hearer understand. And after that, we rested. And here's the thing that folk get confused about with the Sabbath. Is they think because God rested, then they ought to rest physically. That principle is flawed because God doesn't get tired. The rest that is spoken of in creation was a stepping back of sorts. Stepping back to marvel. To marvel at the glory of creation and in many ways to exhibit the glory of creation. We do that, don't we? We finish a project. We step back. We feel a sense of accomplishment. We check out the handiwork. Well, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit did that. And then, under the Mosaic law, God gave the nation of Israel the principle of refraining and refreshing. We were never given such a law in the New Covenant. As the Son, we're told in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9 and 11... That He is our Sabbath rest. In the face of opposition and persecution stemming from a violation of the Sabbath. Jesus tells the nation of Israel's upper echelon. The religious and the political, the Sanhedrin. He says to them, my father and I are working. No work, they say. Jesus says, I'm working. No work. My father's working. What Jesus is saying is that God doesn't rest every seventh day. God is always working. Make no mistake what Jesus is also saying here. God and I, my Father and I, are one. The very phrase by Christ the Son, my Father, indicates that He is saying that we are, the Father and I, are of the exact same essence and the exact same substance. The Jews knew that. The cults of our day don't understand that, but the but the, but the Jews here, they understood it because as we'll see next Lord's Day, Lord willing, in verse 18, they wanted to kill him for saying that. For saying that God and him were equal. But for now, think about Jesus' words in verse 17 for a moment. The Son has healed to display his power and ability to not only deliver physical sickness, but to overcome and deliver sin 
sickness. He does that on the Sabbath. Because he's orchestrating all of the events. He must be betrayed. He must be handed over. He must be killed by the religious elite. And they come at him regarding the Sabbath. And he just says to them. And they're very powerful words for every believer here this morning. Jesus says to them that God in the person of Christ, never stops working. That's a comfort. Father and Son created the world perfect. Sin entered the world far from perfect. Sin and sickness and death spread to all. And since that moment, ever, even before time's first moment, Jesus is saying, my father and I have not stopped working. No Sabbath for us. We keep working. Working to fulfill the plan that we planned in eternity past. Working to save the elect. Working to provide for the church. Working to care for the saints. Working to uphold the world, the sun, moon and the stars. Working to draw lost sinners to himself. Working to pray for the saints every day. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. What's he doing? He is ever living and he is ever making intercession for you and I. He never stops working. You and I might worry. He never stops working. He never stops working for our good. Never. Psalm 121 verse 3 or 4 says, He never sleeps and He never slumbers. He's working so that we can rest. Rest spiritually because we've been ransomed and rescued spiritually this world can throw the kitchen sink our God is for us because he is ever working for us what a comfort in the worries of this world maybe you don't know the Lord Jesus Maybe you need to know the Lord Jesus. Maybe enough's enough. Physical malady is one thing. Sinful malady, another. Your sins are either forgiven or they're not. Blessed is he whose sins are forgiven. I say to you that your sins can be forgiven by a simple trust in a strong and mighty Savior. Who went to the cross. Who hung upon that cross. And as he hung upon that cross, he bore in himself all the penalty and punishment for sin. Trust in him today. 
And for those of us that have had the Lord come by and say, do you wish to get well? And not because we have anything in and of ourselves to say, yes, I do. And I get up on my own feet. No, 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 no. There must be a word from Jesus. Just a word. For those of us that have been made well, he keeps working. And you and I both know that things are going to get shaky. But he keeps working. Things may get very bad. He keeps working. He keeps praying for us. And he keeps working for us. And therefore, there's nothing that the world or man can do to us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we say thank you for this time. Lord, you express your love through the corporate gathering. You speak to us through your word. Father, may we be moved to live in light of the fact that we were by the pool a long time in a terrible condition. And you sent your son to come by and say, do you wish to get well? Pray for anyone here who's still lame by the pool that hasn't trusted in the sovereign Savior, the Lord Jesus. Heaven sent Son, sent from the Father's love. Would they trust in the only way to have peace with God? Would you get great glory for yourself, Lord, as your saints that have, I, I pray, been encouraged here this morning? Would we leave here and live amongst a crooked and perverse generation not afraid of being rejected, not afraid of having a reputation tarnished, but pressing forward like our Savior did, making God's will our ultimate delight. We thank you for the precious person of Jesus, and it's in his name we pray, and all God's people said. The sun's shining again. Let's enjoy some fellowship.